When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It would be great to represent your country. But he had made up his mind. Charles Barker's not going to make my Olympic team, period. There was no plan B. One of my coaches said, if you get 10 rebounds a night, son, you're going to be in the NBA. And I'm like, that's going to be my specialty. So have you stayed true to that? I stayed true to that. I never talk about taxes. I say, I'm glad to pay taxes. Yeah. I'm glad to. I, I don't you don't complain. want that phone call? I don't again. want that phone call. Nobody <laughs> wants to be a Russell phone call. That's not good. No, that's not good. <laughs> You know, guys, I guess in every sport, there are two or three people that actually pop out and define the sport. And Charles Barkley is one of those people. I mean, there's Michael Jordan, Shaq. I mean, there's always just a few people that their personality just kind of pops out. And Charles Barkley is one of those people. They call him the round mound of rebound. I mean, this guy is one of the top five rebounders in the history of the sport. But more than anything, I don't think he's got an edit button. This guy will say anything, and I have to admit, I'll watch basketball games just to hear him at the breaks and at halftime. He is absolutely hilarious, but at the same time, he's very insightful about the game. He says what you and I are thinking, but he is a hell of a nice guy. He's really fun to be around, and I had a sit-down with him in Atlanta, I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think you're going to learn some things. I had a good time. I'm proud to call him friend. So I'm going to stop talking about him and start talking to him in just about 60 seconds. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Look, I watch you all the time on the air. How's it going at TNT? You like doing that? I love my job. First of all, you know, I'm gonna watch the games anyway. So they're going to pay you uh, to watch? So I'm getting paid to watch. And I love the guys I work with. Uh, but it's, it's you know, you know the toughest thing, Doc, when you retire, you don't have anything to do. And to get paid to watch basketball just kind of keeps me on scholarship, basically. Because, you know, a lot of these guys, I'm not saying we're dumb, but we don't have, like, great degrees. And also, I played in the NBA for 16 years. So I've been out of the workforce for 16 years. So my options of what I'm going to do when I retire are very limited. I don't want to coach. I don't want to go to work every single day. Right. Uh, So broadcasting is the best job ever. Would you ever coach? Did that ever occur to you to coach? No, it won't occur to me because I'm the old guy, get off my lawn. What I mean by that (laughs) is I don't know how great these guys want to be. Yeah. Because I think the, the money has gotten so astronomical now. You got guys making $20, 30 $40 million. 
you know, we joke around all the time. I'm so old. I remember we were walking around the locker room when the guy first made a million dollars. Yeah. And now the average salary is six million. But I'm not sure how great these guys want to be. And probably one negative, when you've been good at something, you kind of hold everybody to the same standard. I would go crazy arguing and probably fighting with my players. That's why I won't coach. Yeah. My friend David Foster always says, good is the enemy of great. Yeah. And these people yeah. get, they make a bunch of money. And I think it takes the incentive away. It's like, you got it made. You don't have to be great. It, it, it didn't used to be like that yeah. uh, when I played, because they wouldn't give you a six-year deal for $150 million. They're like, I would give you a two-year deal for 600000 so you'll keep playing. Uh, so it, it's frustrating at times because you see players who like, hey, I got my money. I'm just going to chill. So that's probably the most frustrating thing. Even when I'm just being in the studio, you can see guys who get money and just pack it in. Yeah. What did you make your rookie year? Do you remember? My first contract, it was four years, $2 million. I think my first year I made about 400000 Yeah. Yeah. 400,000. Yeah. And what would that be today? What are the, what are the rookies pulling down today? Oh, that, you make 12 to 15 million dollars a year. Yeah. And that's on where your, you went. And you that's went. on your that's like on your rookie deal. Then you'd get two deals worth probably 100 to 200 million, 150 to 200 million. You'd yeah. probably get two more of those. Yeah. But listen, I don't begrudge these guys cuz I made more than Dr. J and Bill Russell. These guys were much better players than me. Yeah. Uh but sometimes I see the numbers, I'm like, wow, this guy you just got five years, $125 million. That's good work if you can get it. Yeah, hell yeah, it's good work yeah, if you get it. Yeah. Now, answer me this, because I, I, you may have been asked this before, but I want to ask questions that people can really take something away from, because I'm curious what your theory is about this, because, I mean, you're listed as one of the 50 greatest players to ever play the game in history. I mean, you're one of only four or five players to – have scored, what is it, 20,000 20, points, points 23,000 yeah. points, 12,000 rebounds, 4,000 yeah. assists, and you are not one of the five most physically gifted players to ever play the game. I mean, there are yeah. taller players, yeah. there are faster players, yeah. there are more muscular, more physically gifted players. You're not one of the most five best specimens yeah. to ever play the game, but yet you're in the top five mm -hmm. to ever play the game. How did you make that happen? Well, number one, I, I didn't like being poor. Yeah. And, and like basketball. That helps. It, 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 <laughs> no, but it, it like, you know, I was telling you earlier about I wasn't going to get a degree in engineering or anything like that. But see, one reason I love sports, uh, it could change your life. Uh, it changed my life. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the project with a single mom, but basketball saved me. It got me out of that environment. Uh, so once I started having success, you know, you buy your mom a house, you buy your grandmother a house, and you're like, man, but you have to keep working your behind off. But I love sports because it just changed the entire dynamic of my life. I wasn't just some kid in the country, uh, grew up poor, and that was my life. And it's only because of that ball. Uh, and once you start having success, like when I went to high school, I'm like, okay, now I got to get to college. At this time, I'm not thinking I'm going to play in the NBA. Let's be realistic. I'm thinking like, right. okay, I'm going to go to college for free. 
And then when I got to the NBA and I'm like, ooh, these guys are going to pay me to play basketball. Right. And I'm like, I'm staying here as long as I can. I mean, yeah. I'm like, hey, Hell this yeah. is a, this is a, and it's a great living. Sports are a great living. I mean, football's dangerous, but it's still a great living because you got guys who, like I say, what would they be doing? Because the people always ask me this question. I always say, I'm not going to give you no bogus answer. I have no idea what I would be doing if it wasn't for basketball. I'm not going to sit here and act like I was a great student, but basketball means a lot to me because it changed the dynamic of my yeah. life. And I tell these kids all the time, not just going pro. The reason I, I stress so much education, because you get a chance to do what you want to do if you get that free education. You got so many people walking around here who are in debt and going to be in debt for a long time. Uh, is the system perfect? Not even close to perfect. But to go to college for free, I think is a really big deal. Yeah, because you're not debt loaded when you come out. Yes. I, I would not have gone to college if I wasn't on a full ride scholarship. Yeah. I went on a football scholarship and I got hurt. And all, but I mean, I didn't get killed, and it put me in college. Yes, and otherwise, I I guarantee you, I wouldn't have gone. And I so I did go, and then I went on and got graduate school, mm -hmm. and then went on and got a doctor's degree, and here I am today. But I wouldn't have done it without sports. But but that's the thing I tell these young kids. I said, first of all, I wish every kid could play pro sports. It's the greatest living ever. It's awesome, yeah. but it's unrealistic. Less than one percent of all players uh, gonna go on to the NBA, the NFL, or major league baseball and that's why i tell him man please take advantage of that free education but did you talk to yourself a lot i mean when you're young because like i say single mother you're in the projects your role models the people you looked up to were not no the greatest role models i mean you, come on they're criminals i played basketball very angry in the beginning yeah i was angry at my dad i was angry at miss gomez Ms. Gomez was my Spanish teacher, and I flunked Spanish. I did, I flunked Spanish. First of all, I'm trying to figure out, even to this day, 50-some years later, why was I taking Spanish in, in <laughs> Alabama? I tell myself that all the time, I joke. But, so I flunked Spanish, and I didn't get to graduate. And I stood next door at the baseball stadium on the top rung by myself. And I watched the entire graduation, and I cried unmercifully for like an hour. We only had like a little over 100 people graduate. Right. And I was so distraught. And every time I touched the basketball court, I was mad at my dad for not being there. And my dad actually flew across the country to see me graduate. He was not really in my life, but he flew from California to Alabama to see me graduate. And I flunked my Spanish exam. And I didn't grade. He was furious. And I like, so you didn't get to walk the stage. I did not get to walk. But I stood there uh, like an hour and a half and just watched everybody graduate. And I cried the whole time. And then I made in my mind that night, I'm going to get all these people back. It wasn't until I got older and realized, you know what? Okay, so so actually what happened, remember the, the incident I had where I spit in New Jersey? Right. You did not spit on an eight-year-old no, girl on purpose. I that, did not. That, she was not your target. But she was not. Well, nobody was my target. It was just stupidity on my part. But that night... First of all, I got suspended, which I should have got suspended. But I was sitting in a hotel that night, and I said, man, you got to calm down. Because if you play on the edge, it's just a matter of when you're going to go over the edge. Yeah. And I sit down. I said, you know what? I forgive my dad. He wasn't there. We grew up poor. It sucked. But I got to play basketball for me. Then secondly, I said, you know what? It's actually my fault I flunked Spanish. It's really not Mrs. Gomez's fault. Yeah. I flunked the exam. 
And from that point on, my whole basketball life changed. I said, I just want to be a great player and have success for myself. But going through high school, not when I in college, I was trying to prove, I was trying to stick it to everybody. I wasn't mature enough to realize the stuff that happened in my life was my fault. And after the spin incident in New Jersey, I had to sit in that hotel room and say, man, what is wrong with you? Uh, and that, to me, that actually was the turning point in my career. Really? It was, because I was like, you can't play basketball angry. You play to be successful, and you play for the love. You ain't trying to stick it to people. Because at some point, you got to realize you don't be successful to stick it to people. You have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm successful for me and the people around me. Not to say, yeah, remember when you didn't let me graduate? Yeah, that's for you, Ms. Gomez. And then, like I say, you learn this stuff when you get older. I'm like, oh, actually, Ms. Gomez, you're not the reason I flunk Spanish. You just, just was teaching the class. Yeah. But that was the turning point for me uh, in life, to be honest with you, because I, I didn't play anger from that night on. Really? I did not. All right, so you're standing there watching everybody graduate, breaking your heart because you didn't. But you didn't blame yourself then. You blamed her then. How did you get through Spanish? You eventually graduated because you went to Auburn. Yeah, I went I went to summer school. You know, that that was traumatic, not marching. Yeah, not walking that stage. Yeah, that was traumatic. Did you think people were making fun of you? Or... Oh, for, I only thought that because they were. <laughs> I only thought that. They were calling me the big dummy. Yeah. You know, you know, kids are cruel. Yeah. You have to, but, and, and say, like I say, when I played, I was like trying to get them all back. Like every kid who said, look at this dummy not gonna graduate. Yeah. Uh, like, so when I went to summer school, when I went to college, I was like, I'm gonna make all these people regret making fun of me. Uh, and it, it was it was really, like I say, because you, like, you, you, you have to grow up and mature. And like I say, I was like, no man, it wasn't Miss Gomez's fault. And I said, my dad wasn't there, he wasn't there. I got to move on. What'd you say to yourself about him not being there? I mean, was this the kind of thing where you said, if I was a better kid, he would have stayed? Or? No, I was just mad because he wasn't there. Because my mom was a maid, and my grandmother worked in a meatpacking factory, and they worked like dogs. And how did you explain to yourself that he wasn't there? He wasn't there. I and mean, then how he, did you explain that? Oh, I mean, my mom. To you. To me, I was just mad because, like, it was just a, it wasn't a great environment. We never had anything. No matter how, I mean, when your mom's a maid and your grandmother's working, like, and you got three boys, not a lot of stuff to go around. Yeah. And we were in the projects. And then when I started getting older in, in high school, I was like, you know, cause my dad would always say he was going to send me money, but he never sent it. And I'd be sitting by the mailbox like, Charles, relax, it's not coming. And I was like, no, he said he was going to send me some money. He never sent any money. So my resentment kept building and until it just like, I was just angry all the time. Like I was just like, see, you watch me on TV now. You watch me in college, you watch me on the pros. This is your loss. And I'm like, you know what? Whatever happened between him and my mom, that's between them. But I ain't gonna play basketball to stick it to him anymore. Is he alive? Yes. Do you talk to him now? I do and I, I love my dad. He's never been a father for me. But we are cool. By the time we reconcile, I was too old to need a father. I don't mean yeah. that in a negative way. Because uh, I think we didn't probably get really back together until I was like my late 20s. Uh, but we're cool. We're cordial. I wish him nothing but the best. Do you talk to him? 
I talk to him at least a couple days a week just to make, you know, because Dr. Phil, you know, when you start losing people, it's a reality check. Like when I lost my mother, like there was no more Mother's Day. And when I do lose my father, there won't be any more Father's Day. Yeah. And I actually had a couple of my really close friends say to me, like, yo, man, you need to reconcile with your dad. And I said, why? They're like, you know, when they gone, they gone. And I, I really took that to heart. And that was in my late 20s when one of my friends said, that, he said, yo, man, my dad died. I don't have any more Father's Day. And if something happened to your dad and you ain't at peace, you're going to regret it. And that was a valuable lesson. You know, my dad was an alcoholic, and I mean, a bad alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you come home and he kicks the windows out of the house yeah. and tears the vena hood off and yeah. throws it out the window. And I was 42 when he died. And by that time, I'd gone to school on a football scholarship, I'd gotten a doctor's degree, I had a wife and a son. I mean, I was pretty successful in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And he died when I was 42. And in 42 years, not one time did he ever say, I'm proud of you. Yeah. Not one time in 42 years did I ever hear him say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the man you became. I'm proud of what you've accomplished Mm -hmm. or achieved. And then when they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. And that was probably the frustrating thing for me because when I did reconcile with my dad, I don't think he ever said he was proud of me and my success and proud of the man I've become. It was like, hey, I want y'all to meet my famous son. I felt like I was like a show dog. A show dog. Yeah. And I was like, so then I broke it off with him again. Yeah. And then he actually got sick. And I said, yo, man, I, I don't, uh, you my dad, you don't know what I'm ever going to have. We got to come to some type of resolution, but I don't want you sh- making me the show pony. But like I say, we have reconciled and I think we're in a good place. Yeah. Sometimes you got to give yourself what you wish you could get from somebody else. I mean, you got to look yourself in the mirror and maybe your dad doesn't say it, but you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, I am a good man. I am a good father. I am a good husband. I don't need to hear it from you. I'll say it to myself. You got to give it to yourself sometimes. Well, I think the main thing it helped me with is with my daughter, Christiana. She's amazing. Uh, She went to uh, Villanova undergrad. She just graduated from Columbia grad school. Mm-hmm. She's a special kid. And I really... She's 30? She'll be 30, May the 15th. And I really... And anytime I was around her, probably to the point of annoyance, like, hey, you know your dad loves you, right? You know, if you need anything, I'm here. I didn't want her to ever, like, yeah. man, what's up with my dad? Because I mean, first of all, you know, because you, you, you travel a lot, we're gone a lot. But anytime I was with her, I was like, hey, your dad loves you. He's proud of you. Like, I sent her a text at least once a week now just to, hey, listen, you're the best thing ever happened to me in my life, and I'm really proud of the woman you have become because I never got that, Yeah, you know. Yeah, so you make sure she has it. I want her to know I'm proud yeah. of what she's accomplished. So she never went through everything you went through. No. Because she grew up with a great mom Yeah, and, and like, First of all, you know, and that's the really had weird, plenty to eat, yes. nice house to live and, in. You know, and that's probably the toughest dynamic of this whole thing. Famous kids, when your dad's like yourself, and I've been in NBA since 1984, and yeah. I've seen so many horror stories with the guys. You know, you go through their ups and downs, 
And we sit around and talk all the time about what do you give your kids? Like, what do you give them? Can you, and then it's, it's, it's a great debate. Do you give them too much? You give them too little? You know, it was interesting. My grandmother, who's probably the greatest influence in my life, she's the greatest person ever. She called me one time and she said, Charles, I really need to talk to you. I said, Granny, you can talk to me about anything. He says, you need to get your daughter a car. I said, Granny, you didn't get me a car until I graduated high school. She said, Charles, you, your life is different than ours. We were poor. She said, we scrapped together and got you an old used car when you graduated from high school. And she said, Christiana goes to a very good school. Uh, she's a good kid. Everybody else at her school probably got a car. I said, that's probably correct. I said, I was going to wait till she graduates high school like you did for me. She says, you have to understand that we're not like that anymore. So I had to start thinking like that. She says, you're not poor. We're not on welfare. Yeah. Don't <laughs> and, live poor ways. Yeah, yes. And, and, and it, so you have to think about stuff like that all the time, what to give your kids. Do you worry about giving too much? It's a very fine line. I don't know the line, though. I see kids all the time like, wait, why do you have an iPhone 10? I don't even have an iPhone 10. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know. I got a seven. You, yeah. <laughs> but you see, because like all the guys in the same boat uh, as me, and then I got friends in other sports, and we'll sit around with my NFL friends. like, yo, man, I got some issues with my kids. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, yo, man, I can't give you an answer. But that's like the great debate. You know, we are successful. We make a ton of money. And like I say, there's no right or wrong answer either. That's the thing that's scary. We've I've had guys who are so strict with their kids, they don't give them anything, and the kids resent them. And then I've had people who give their kids too much, and the kid becomes a pain. I mean, you sitting back trying to figure out which is the right way. Yeah, and you got to watch how they handle it, right? Because overindulgence is a form of child abuse because yeah. you can cheat them out of the opportunity to observe themselves achieve things. Mm -hmm. If you give it to them, then they don't get to see themselves earn this, overcome that, achieve mm -hmm. that. You cheat them out of that so they don't get to learn about themselves that they could do that. If you give it to them, you cheat them out of that. Well, you know, when we first met, I asked you a question. We were in Vegas, uh, and I said, why do you say money don't solve money problems? And you explained to me, you can't pay your way out of money trouble. Yeah. And that's probably the biggest mistake that I've made in my entire life. You know, I probably got $4 million I gave to friends who I shouldn't have because, you know, you get all this money and you want your friends to like you. But just giving people money, you just, number one, you become an enabler. But it eventually always ruins your relationship. Because if you give somebody $500,000, the first time you tell them no, they hate you. You bought a $500,000 enemy is what you did. <laughs> yes. But, but when you told me that, I was already into it deep. Yeah. Just like all the players, like all the players, like, yo, man, my family, they drive me crazy. Friends are driving me crazy. And I had to learn a very valuable lesson. I had to learn the word no. You had to lose a lot of friends and not feel bad about it. Because I always tell people, deep down, everybody want to be liked. But you can't. Yeah, but you know, I had a family member call me pissed off one time and said, you got a half a million dollars worth of car sitting in your garage and they're getting ready to turn my lights off. How can you do that? And my question was, do you have a job? Yeah. And they said, no, I don't have a job. 
I said, well, let me tell you, your job is getting a job. Yeah. If you don't have a job, your job should be working as hard as you would be working if you had a job. Yes. So if you don't have a job, don't call me yeah. about how much money I got Ugh. sitting in a garage. Hey. If you're working 80 hours a week and you need a little help to get by, then call me. But if you're sitting on the couch yep. watching TV, don't call me yeah. about how much money you don't have. Uh, they love to spend your money. Damn right. And if you yeah. give the reason I say money doesn't solve money problems is they didn't get there from lack of money. They got there from making bad choices, mm -hmm. spending money in the wrong places, spending money that they need for things they need. It doesn't matter what you need. It matters what you can afford. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you yeah. need. I needed this coat. Well, you can't afford that coat. So it doesn't matter what you need. It's what matters what you can afford. That, that, I, I wish uh, there's only two people told me that you and Grant Hill's mom, Janet, because after I talked to you, I spent some time uh, with Calvin and, and his wife. And I, every time I see Miss Hill, I just give her a big hug. I said, Miss Hill, Grant just signed for $100 million. Why y'all still working? She says, Charles, get over here. Let me talk to you. <laughs> she says, this is my number one advice that I'm going to tell you. Don't you start taking care of your family. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin your relationship. And every time I see her, I got to say, and I said, you know what? I wish I had to listen to you sooner. Yeah. And Dr. Phil, because it did come back to bite me because your family resents you if you don't keep them on the payroll forever. Damn right. My dad used to say beyond that, he said, you better make a little profit off your friends and family because your enemies don't come around too much. <laughs> That's exactly you right. Know, not only do you not yeah. give them money, uh, you ought to charge them for yeah. what you do. Yep. I totally get it. And we are in a different world. So you've seen the statistic that, what is it, like 80%? Professed athletes go broke. Yeah, within two years. Mm -hmm. By the time they're out of the league, they're either bankrupt or in serious financial trouble, mm -hmm. divorced, drugs or alcohol. Why do you think that is? Well, number one, your family and friends always want money. That's yeah. first and foremost. Um, that's the number one reason. But also all the free time you got. Yeah. If you got a drinking problem or a drug problem and money, it escalates. The people always say, Charles, what's your normal day like in the NBA? Well, depending. Some teams practice at 10. Some teams practice at 11. Uh, practice lasts an hour and a half, maybe two if you're playing bad. But you don't go crazy because you're playing four games a week. Right. And then I'm off for the day. They're like, what do you mean? I said, well, first of all, we have a game. Practice only lasts like 30 minutes. But if you don't have a game, I'm pretty much done by noon every day. Yeah. And you got a guy who got – Unlimited income because you're getting two hundred dollars a day per diem. Yeah, people don't even think about that. We get two hundred dollars a day per diem. Yeah. Uh, you, you can get plenty of alcohol and drugs with two hundred dollars a day. And I said, if you got any bad habits, and then that go to piggyback on that, I told you, when you retire, you don't have a job. I mean, there's very few TV jobs. It, it stops the flow. It stops the Bang. flow, and you got twenty four hours a day. To do absolutely nothing, and if you drink too much or do drugs, it's the perfect storm. It's a long way to fall. It's a it? long way to fall. But I tell people, I call it the alien effect. No matter how great you are, in your mid-30s, they drop you off in this in this foreign yeah. world and say, good luck. Yeah, good We're luck. We're done with you. Yeah. I said, I'm one of you got lucky when into television because there's only a couple of TV jobs. But for the rest of the guys, no matter how successful you are in your mid-30s, most of the time your early 30s, they're going to say, hey, we really appreciate you. 
We thank you for everything. Good luck. Yeah. And you're like, well, I don't have a job. I don't have an education. I don't know what to do. Yeah, but we don't worry about you. We got to play the season next. Yeah, we got a new guy. We got a new guy. He's in your locker. Yeah. And that's how some of these guys really struggle uh, when they retire. Yeah. Yeah, they really struggle. Yeah. I mean, I look at it even in when they're in the league. It's like you got young guys, pure testosterone flowing through their veins. They got too much money, too much mm-hmm. time. Yeah. They're not really well socialized yep. because they're young. They haven't been in the world yet. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong here? And it's it's like the, a candy store of bad stuff. Yeah. Like, if you want alcohol, you can get it. You want girls, you can get it. You want drugs, you can get it. It's like the perfect storm. Because anybody who got money, they're coming for it. Yeah, there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there trying to get your money. Yeah. And I've been, I tell the guys, yo, man, I was watching the Mike Tyson documentary the other day, the 42 to 1. And he said something very interesting before. He says, you know, the the, the thing that bores me the most, he said, this camera's like a drug. He says, you can fall in love with it and it can take over your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it did later down the line for him, but he says, it's intoxicating uh, to be in front of this camera and everybody adoring you and making all this money. Yeah. And uh, like, you know, obviously he, he had his issues, but this stuff is not as easy. It sounds easy. Uh, like, and first of all, it's a blessing. Number one, I want to make that cl- oh, clear, yeah. but like, it's not as like, man, wait, you guys got all this money, all this free time. You play basketball. You, you in every state, uh, man, it's a lot of stuff can go wrong. And then you got 18-year-old kids now yeah. that are making $5 million. They went to college for six months. Well, they actually went to college for like three months. Yeah, That's one of the dirty little secrets about the one and done thing. They go to class for like the first three months. Uh, and then because by the time they get their report cards or, or grades, the, second, the season's, season's over, over. And they don't care. Doesn't matter. So you're not going to learn anything in three months. No. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're out. So, I, you know, I mean, that's, to me, that's scary. And the league doesn't do enough. I know they have things available, but they don't do enough to prepare these guys. Well, that's another issue because your family and friends don't want you to grow up and mature. Oh, hell no. They, they're like, oh, they're full of shit. They want you to change. We're your homeboys. We're your family. We're your friends. We know what's best for you. It translates as we need your money. We don't want you to learn how to handle money. We don't want you to learn how to save money. We don't want people around. We we want the people who you grew up with, who you trust. And it's, it's, it's amazing how it works. I mean, they're still like, no, they don't want you to grow up. They don't want you to mature. It's like, no, you just stick with us. We got your money. We can handle this. And it's a never-ending cycle. Yeah. We should do something about that someday. You and I should do something, talk to these players when they come in. Oh, I, I would love to do that. I mean, get together, put together a curriculum or something, and just do it. We can volunteer do it for all the incoming players or existing players and tell them the truth. Oh, but that, that's the thing, because I, I tell you people, if we could do it. Like, me and you would be on this shoulder, tell them, like, hey, you got to save your money. This money got to last you for the rest of your life. And then you got your homeboys and your family, like, screw those guys. We got this. 
Yeah, but we'd be pretty persuasive. No, I, I, no question. I, I love when the NBA does stuff like that. Yeah. But the, the, like I say, the players got so many people pulling on them, though. Yeah. That's the thing that's dangerous. Yeah, we'd be pretty good on our end of the rope. Oh, yeah, no question. See, I've got this theory, and I've, I've told Jay and I, my son and I have talked about this. I have this theory that in, like, the 70s and 80s, basketball was kind of, I don't know, it wasn't a marquee sport in America the way it became. People come along that change the game. They give it personality. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean there weren't great players then, because there were. I mean, there were fabulous players. But it's like golf. When Tiger plays, the ratings go through Mm -hmm. the roof. When he doesn't play, the ratings are flat. You've got to have people that come along that have personality that give the game spark. You were that player Mm, in the NBA. You were that player. You gave it personality. You Mm. made people talk about it. You made people laugh about it. You were controversial. You were polarizing in a positive way and gave the game sparkle. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I watch this show a lot. I'm going to tell you about the role model thing in a minute. I was watching your show one day. And this guy was quoting me, and you, y'all were going at it pretty good. I says, and I would explain what I meant. So, the two most important people in NBA history are Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, because if you actually go back before those guys, it was a black league, all the guys doing drugs, nobody cared. Right. The average salary, I think, when David Stern got to the NBA was two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And Magic and Bird came along, like Jack and Arnold. In golf, they were just like right. the two most important golfers from a financial standpoint. Then Tiger came along, and that's our Michael Jordan. Um, so Magic and Bird saved the NBA, and Michael took it to another level. Same thing, like I say, with Jack and Arnie, who are amazing, and Tiger just took it through the roof. But we need personalities. I respect and admire LeBron James and I really like Steph Curry and I love Russell Russell Westbrook and the Greek Freak and all these guys. There's always so many great players and we love to show their personalities because the fans, the fans who are the most important aspect of this, they pick their favorite player and they ride or die with him. Yeah. And that's what you need. Like I meet so many wonderful people in my life who's like, hey, you are my favorite player. I said, really, that's really nice. You know, obviously you got Michael, you got all these guys who made the league what it is today. What made you so outspoken? When in your life did you get outspoken? You said anger drove you early. And you've said this, you've been quoted as saying, you got a platform, you'll take a position where others won't. What made you decide to speak your mind, take positions and be outspoken? Uh, I learned that halfway through my rookie year, because I remember the moment it happened. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm listening to everybody. Because, I, I, you know, like I said earlier, everybody want to be liked. I'm just like, you know, I'm just so lucky and blessed. And I thank God and blah, 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 blah. The sisters called me in the next day. They're like, hey, um, we don't want you talking about God on TV anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> They're like, well, we got a bunch of calls from some agnostic and some atheists. I'm like, what? We can't talk about God so that was my first one. And then, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. You can't make everybody happy. Oh, hell no. That was the toughest part for me. I see, I'm a little kid from a small town in Alabama. Nobody's ever hated on me before. And then I start just paying attention, like, 
oh, it doesn't matter what you say. Half the people are going to like it, and half the people are going to dislike it. So I made up my mind. I said, okay, I've got to be able to look myself in the mirror. And I always preface it. I said, that don't mean I'm right all the time, but I'm going to try to speak my truth and my rightness. Because if somebody wants me to say something, I say, I can't, that's not my answer. And I hope people agree with me or like it. But halfway through my rookie year, I realized, like, man, it doesn't matter what you say. Half these people are going to like it and half of them going to hate you. You might as well say what you, you believe. You might as well say what you believe. And I, from that point on, I'm like, you know what? Hey, this is my truth. I'm going to tell you what I think if you ask me a question. And even when people walk up to me on the street, they're like, hey, you know what? I don't agree with everything you say, but I believe you come from a, a place of peace. Yeah. And, like, you ain't just saying stuff just to get clickbait. I said, no, man, I'm on, like I say, I don't think I'm right all the time, but I'm going to try to be fair to you and honest with you. Yeah. I think it's really important being on television to tell the truth. Oh, yeah. Because there's somebody in Montana, Maine, South Dakota, they're never going to meet me more than likely. And I want them to say, that guy's going to be honest with me. He's not just trying to get my attention. And, And that means a great deal to me. Yeah. And- I got this belief, if you're not honest, people know it. Yeah. I mean, they, particularly they when they watch you, they yeah. know that's bullshit. Yeah, they do. He I, I totally agree with that. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that. You made the commercial for Nike, I'm not a role mm-hmm. model. Did you believe that? I did. And that's probably, even to this day, probably the thing I'm most proud of because it always starts a debate. So I went to Nike, I think it was 89. I said, I want to make this commercial. And they're like, are you freaking nuts? I says, okay, so we're going to start a debate about the role model thing. And I says, this, you're going to get killed. I says, I can handle it. I'm a big boy. They says, well, why do you want to make the commercial? I says, I noticed something. Okay, y'all have us speaking at all these schools. And a lot of these schools are segregated. And I says, when I go to a white school, I always say, well, how many of y'all want to play in the NBA? Only like 5 to 7%. I said, well, what do you want to do? I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a teacher, fireman, policeman. I'm like, okay. And I go to the predominantly black school. I said, well, how many of y'all want to play sports in the NBA? It was pretty much 100%. Then I realized these kids are brainwashed to think they can only be successful through athletics and entertainment. Like I said, I, I did like a three-year window where I was going to these schools. And I said, hey, pay attention. Watch this here. The people who, was, who were around me, and they're like, these black kids think they can only be successful through athletics and entertainment. And these white kids, like, they want to be doctors, lawyers, engineers. And I says, well, I want these black kids to think like that. And it just gave me a platform. And the media, which what they do, they always tell you what you meant to say. Yeah. I said, no, I know what I meant to say. And I, I, I was just trying to start a debate. And the thing about Nike, Nike was like, you're not going to believe this. I think 90% of the letters we're getting are positive. I said, first of all, I knew the letters were going to be positive because my message was positive. I'm not trying to shirk my responsibility of being a role model. I'm trying to start a debate, and then I can say exactly what I mean to say. And even when I'm asked about that question today, I said, can I explain? I wasn't trying to, like, athletes are role models, but I don't want young black kids thinking they can't do uh, things other than play sports and be entertainers. So I got, I kind of got my point across. But like I say, I, I'm not worried about taking no heat. Part of being in this thing and having this platform, you should be able to talk about anything 
And sometimes it's going to be unpopular. You know, like... But it starts a debate. Yes. Like uh, here in Atlanta, uh, gay people love me. Because when the NBA was going to go to Charlotte for the All-Star game, I said, I'm not going to go to Charlotte. We're not going to discriminate against gay people. A lot of my, my friends, we're going to move to All-Star game. And they're like, calm down, Charles. I said, no, 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 no. This is our moment in the NBA. We got to stand up for these gay people. We can't have a, a especially we're a predominantly black league. We got to be against all form of discrimination. Right. And we move the All-Star game. And the people here who, they like, man, you really stuck your neck out. I said, it's the right thing to do. And I said, but I want you to remember something. Sometimes I might say some stuff down the line you don't agree with. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to always try with that platform I got. I'm going to always try to do the right thing. Yeah. Were you surprised with the Kaepernick commercial with Nike? I was surprised because I want to know what their agenda is because I'm a Nike guy. I want to know what their agenda is. And like I said, I'm a Nike guy. I don't want them just trying to make money. I want them to do the right thing. So I put in phone calls to Nike. I said, hey, are we just trying to make money on a segment or are we trying to do the right thing? And I have enough faith in Nike. I do think Colin's been blackballed. Uh, he's definitely been blackballed. And it's unfortunate. Uh, it's really unfortunate. But like I say, my biggest concern with Nike was, yo, man, are we trying to do the right thing? Do you think he picked the right way to take a stand? No, I do not. I think you stand for the anthem. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Uh, I thought he did it the wrong way. I, I think everybody should stand for the anthem. The thing that's really interesting about the whole debate, until this dude in the White House started calling people names, there was actually only about 25 guys kneeling. Yeah. Until President Trump started calling guys' name, which once you start calling guys' name, all bets are off. Yeah, now they're thumbing their nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I thought he went about it the wrong way. I think it's worth a great debate. And I think that you have to – it's one of those things – I don't think cops are out there just trying to kill black people. Uh, I think there's some cops out there who are scared to death. As he, uh, cops got the hardest job in the world, and I don't want them out here killing unarmed black men, but it's such a subject we need to talk about. It's important. It's significant. And I, I don't know a right or wrong answer, but to get back to your point, I thought kneeling doing the anthem or just sitting there is just not the right way to do it, personally. Well, my concern about it is the military. Yes. Because I hate sending a message to the military or around the world that we don't support the military. Yes. That's my concern yeah, about I, it. And I agree. And, you know, one of the things I've done, I, I work with the Wounded Warriors. Uh, one of the charities, I, I try to give a lot of my money away. And I gave a million dollars to the Wounded Warriors. And when you go and see what these guys sacrifice, no arms, no legs, disfigured, and you're like, no, man, we got to stand for the anthem. When I have been to visit these hospitals to see these guys, and, you know, you lose body parts, your life is never the same. Yeah, it's changed. Uh, it's changed forever. And we treat our veterans worse here than any place. Yeah, my, you, being from Alabama, you'll know what I'm talking about. Some of these guys, you've got VA and benefits, 
but some of them are in rural areas mm -hmm. where they got to drive two hours mm -hmm. to get somewhere and get the help that they need. They don't have the money to drive. Some of them literally can't ride two hours yeah. because of their their problems, their their losses, their infirmities, make it where they can't drive two yeah. hours to get there. Uh, it's a travesty the way we treat our vets here. Uh, it's a travesty. We're the greatest country in the world, and we treat our vets awful. Yeah, I hate that. You think Trump's going to get impeached? You know, Doc, I am so sick and tired of this crap every day. I don't talk bad about the president. I'm not a fan of the president, but I don't talk bad because he's the president of the United States. But let me say this here. I'm so sick and tired of every day. Uh, it's talking about the women, you know, talking about uh, paying women. and Like, your job as the president is to take care of the people. That's what your job is. If they impeach him, I don't, I, I don't even know how that'll have effect on like everyday people. I'm just tired of every single day something being tweeted. Like your job is to make us the best country in the world, which we are. Your job is to make sure we don't have government shutdowns. I, I watched six a minute re religiously, and they were talking about all the bridges. I think we got like seven hundred bridges in this country that's decayed or might yeah, yeah falling in. Yeah, falling in. And I'm like, come on, man, that's the stuff. We got the worst public school system in the world, and that's what I want the president to work on. I want to help some of these kids. You know, we talked about it earlier. We got to do something about these student loans. I mean, we got so many of these kids going to be in debt their whole life. And I don't want to hear about Stormy Daniels. First of all, if I had a dollar for every time I heard something about Russia, I don't want to hear about Russia anymore. I really don't. Like, yo, man, do your job. Yeah, you know, one of the first things I always try to teach people that are in controversy is you don't have to react every time somebody takes a poke at you. Yes. You don't have to react. Especially if you're the most powerful man in the world. Yeah. You don't have to react because some Betty in Idaho said something. You yeah. don't have to get on there and tweet in the middle of the night. Are you sleeping? I mean, sleep-deprived people make bad decisions. Yes. <laughs> it, it, Take a nap. Some people, they say, I'm the only celebrity in the world who does no social media. Yeah. And I do it for the reason you just said. I don't want Betty in Iowa saying something about me, and I'm going to be up worried about what Betty's going to say or Jim in Arkansas. Like, people are going to take shots at you when you're successful. But I refuse to do any social media. But I'm smart enough to know if I became president, I wouldn't worry about every single – like, and I say, we all live in the moment, but I don't remember in my history – well, we have to talk about something every single day that this dude tweets. Like, I just want a day off. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if one day people didn't talk about it? Yes. Uh, you know, just dumping on these uh, uh, these these generals. Yeah. Uh, every, and another thing, the amount of people who have quit this administration, it's got to, some got to be going on. Yeah, I mean, it's like rats off a ship, right? <laughs> it's like, yo, man, don't ever, do people want these jobs, don't they? Yeah, you would think. I mean, they say the NFL stands for not for long. Like, I yeah. mean, hell, the White House that's, we that's, were there for like three that, days. It's, it's and like it's, it, it can't it can't be good for the country because I'm one of those guys. Hey, listen, I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I have leaned toward voting Democratic because I think it gives poor people a better chance of being successful. That's the reason I vote Democratic yeah. because. 
I'm not going to sit here and I'd be disingenuous if I acted like whoever the president was going to have a huge effect upon my life. I mean, I made a million dollars, well, not, not, not since 84, but I've been successful since 1984, making a lot of money. Whoever in the White House is not going to, like, make me homeless. Yeah, unless taxes get to be 100%, yes. we're just going to keep yeah, working, yes. right? I'm going to keep working. Oh, and you know, one of my mentors, uh, I, I learned to never complain about taxes. One of my mentors is Bill Russell. He's like a father to me. And he calls me one day, and he says, Charles Barkley? I said, yes, sir, Mr. Russell, what's going on? He says, yeah, uh, you grew up in Alabama, right? I said, yes, sir. He says, did you go to public school? I said, yes, sir. He said, okay. He said, did police ever come to your neighborhood? I said, yeah, all the time. He says, oh, so somebody else paid taxes to pay those teachers and cops. Now you got money. You don't want to pay taxes. I said, Mr. Russell, no, 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 no. You shut the hell up. <laughs> I don't want to see your fat black ass on television talking about your taxes anymore. People made money before you were born, paid taxes for schools and cops and things like that. Now all of a sudden you load it, you're gonna complain about taxes. I said, you Mr. Russell, I will never complain about my taxes again. And that's the way Bill Russell talks to you. He is an honorable man. He's a no BS straight shooter. And he tells us, hey, be blessed to make all that money. Don't complain about paying taxes. So have you stayed true to that? I stay true to that. I never talk about taxes. I say, I'm glad to pay taxes. Yeah. I'm glad to I, I don't You don't complain. want that phone call? I don't again. want that phone call. Nobody <laughs> wants to be a Russell phone call. That's not good. No, that's not good. <laughs> you know, when he calls you and you did something wrong, it's not going to be, no, he's an honorable man. Are you worried about young people today versus when you were a teenager? We're talking about things that people did stupid when they're teenagers, like all of these things that kids are into today. Does that worry you versus what you were doing when you were a teen? I think we got the same things. They just got more of it. Like if they want to get in drugs, uh, you know, drugs are a tricky subject for me because I got a younger brother who died uh, because of that. So I always worry anytime, like I'm worried about Josh Gordon. Because I tell people, it's like a bad movie. It's like a movie you know how it's going to end. Like my brother died when he was 40. He didn't have to die when he was 40. I can talk about Prince. I can talk about Michael Jackson. Like drugs, it's always been there and it's always going to be there. I just worry about young kids because, like I say, the Internet is a beautiful thing and a dangerous thing. And uh, social media has given everybody an opinion to a fault. And, and the thing I try to tell people, your truth is your truth. That don't make you right. People think when they, like, people think when they say stuff, like I always say on TV, if you pay a close attention, I says, in my opinion. Yeah. I've always said, I, I wish, I, I, my goal would be to get every analyst on television say that. Because sometimes we call it ESPN disease. The guy will say, like, that pitcher sucks. That quarterback sucks. I'm like, you mean in your opinion? Yeah. Like, not that you actually pitched or played quarterback, but we pay you to give your opinion, but it is just your opinion. But the whole social media aspect has changed. And you see guys, you, if you pay attention, you see recently all these young kids have said stuff, uh, you know, when they were teenagers and they getting blasted. But those tweets are coming back to bite them. You saw it after the national championship game, the kid at Villanova said some stuff. You know, the, the great pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. Like, like that's why. Yeah, the Heisman Trophy. Yeah, the Heisman winner. Trophy winner. Like, yeah. it, it, and I don't ever want to 
put those bad thoughts and they somebody bring them up in my best moments. Like they had to go looking for what that kid to say with that night he won the Heisman Trophy to bring it up the next day. You Same know? thing with that kid who won a national championship at Villanova last year. Like right as, as he's getting the best player in the tournament. Oh, you wrote these tweets when you were like 14. I'm like, oh my God, we're judging people when they're 14 and stupid now? Seriously, I, I think that is chicken shit. It is. I think that is so uh-huh. chicken shit. And I'm sorry, I just don't think that's right. But, I, you know, when I started my show, and I'm in the 17th season now, the first tweet had not been sent. Yeah. There weren't text. And I'm now doing stories with young people saying, you got to be careful what you write down because when you apply for college, that admissions committee is going to go look at your social media. And if they got a picture of you drunk with slut written on your forehead or all of these kind of things at a drunken party, they're going to say, okay, is this who we want? You go for a job application, they're going to search the internet and find all of that stuff. Well, you know, what's interesting Did you see the guy for the Chicago Bears proposed to his girlfriend after the game a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And then it came out, she had wrote all this stuff about black people when she was like a teenager. Oh. And she's married a black guy. Yeah. And <laughs> I actually don't even know how to story, like, because I, I was talking to a couple of my friends in Chicago. Like, Yo, man, did you see this stuff coming out? I'm like, what's going on? I guess when a girl was a teenager, she was going off on black people and saying all these negative things about black people. And now it comes out when she's married his brother. People sitting there and wait. That's what they do. They're, you know, Kevin Hart. They pulling yeah. him out of the, yes. the Oscars now. And, and you know, you know, I, I saw that thing with him and Ellen. So I agree with Ellen, and he gets a chance to say, "Hey, you know what? My bad." That's the biggest problem with celebrities. I think they can't get those words out. Yeah. Like I, I don't have handlers. Like people call me, they're like, "Hey, Mr. Barker." I'm like, "Yo, what's up? Is this you?" I'm like, "Yeah, this me." You call me. Well, what about your assistant? I don't have no assistant. Uh, what about your secretary? I don't have no secretary either. I can tell you no just like she can. But <laughs> these guys, they got all these handlers, and they're like, let's try to handle this. No, no. Just get out there and say, hey, my bad. This is all on me. I really, really screwed up. That's just the way it is. But most celebrities are so afraid to say that now. They try to manage it. Yeah. Try to spin it. Yep. Yeah. But if you own it. See, that's what I, I tell If you own it, first of all, the media, they just going to keep it going because that's what they do. But I think the public always uh, give you a second chance if you just own it. Yeah. Because then where do you go with the story after that? Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Like, my bad. I screwed up. And it's over. Yeah. But, it, no, but everybody wants to put a spin on it. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I like about your show is you always talk about the importance of having a mom and dad in the picture. Even if you got a divorce, you need a, a, a female and a male figure. They need to be in those people's lives. You put the kids' interest ahead of your own. But they people don't. No, they don't. Uh, people don't. But And I always use this. Uh, it's so funny. Like People think uh, you and Nick Saban are my man crushes, apparently. And you always talk about being a right fighter. Yeah. And I use it all the time because there's so many people out there who – who want to be a right fighter. And when you say it on your show, you're like, do you want to be right or do you want to solve the problem? Because I try not to be a, a right fighter. Like, we can all disagree, but there's some people, they just want to be right, even when everybody in the world know they're wrong. And and that 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 helps me just in life in general. 
you know, some of the hardest headed guests that I have that are right fighters like that, they may not get it, but everybody at home does. Yes. Some of the most hard headed guests are the best teaching tools because mm-hmm. they may not get it, but everybody at home goes, Oh my God, that sounds like me. I'll never say that again. Yeah. And so, you know, at least everybody at home gets it because I'll get 10,000 letters that go, my God, that sounded like me. Yeah. My daughter must hear that coming out of my mouth. I'll never say that again. And, you know, when you have dads on, when they say stuff to their, their daughters and tell them how stupid and like in the heat of the moment and things like that, that stuff matters. It takes a thousand attaboys to erase one, you're stupid and worthless. Yeah. Takes a thousand attaboys to erase that. You know, and like I say, I, I have really tried hard. I will, I think my daughter is a good person. I really tried hard to make her a good person. I didn't want her to be a spoiled brat. I didn't overdo it. I just demanded excellence in school. Did she pass Spanish? I didn't know she took <laughs> Spanish. But I always tell her, hey, your dad did pretty good for a college dropout. Yeah. So you made it to your junior year, right? I did. We, st- you know, and I, and I would love for these kids to stay in school for two to three years. Yeah. It's a big difference between taking a kid after three months. Damn right. Then being in school for two or three years. Maturity, emotional development, and just the filling out physically. Physically. I mean, well, seriously. That to me is the. I mean, obviously the mental stuff matter, but the physicality is a really problem. Yeah. I mean, you got a little. You, you see some of these little skinny kids out there sometime, and you're like, "Yo, man, you're in the wrong place right now." Well, talking about basketball, is James Harden the best one-on-one player in the league right now? Yes. But I've said this for the last two years, and Kenny argues with me because I said Michael was there, Kobe, George Gervin, Bernard King, guys like that, but. The reason he's the best one-on-one player today is the way the rules have changed. You can't touch anybody. So he's the best one-on-one player, and he is flat-out unguardable in today's game. It's amazing to me. Uh, he, he have great defenders covering him, and all of a sudden, mm. he's got separation. He's just standing yeah. there by himself. But there's no great defender can stop a great offensive player. Yeah. No. No matter how great you are defensively, you're not going to stop. Like, you couldn't stop Michael Jordan. I mean, yeah. the only difference is, like, the Pistons beat him to death. Uh, same thing uh, with Kobe. You're not going to stop Kobe no matter how great you are defensively. And like I say, now the rules have changed. And it's kind of like uh, you can't stop wide receivers in the NFL. They've changed the rules, make it an offensive league. It's the same thing in the NBA now. Yeah, because the offensive player knows where he's going, mm-hmm. and you can't check him. You, can't, you cannot. I mean, and so, uh, yeah, James is the best one-on-one player in the game today. Would you like the game better or worse today if you were playing it'd be with easy, the rules? It'd be easier. I'd be a better player. It'd be hanging on you less. <laughs> yes. I usually make this joke. Uh, when we played the Pistons, the bad boys, you should always call your wife and kids before the game and say, hey, just in case I don't make it out of here tonight, I love y'all. Because those guys, would just, <laughs> they were just beating the hell out of you. I mean, Robin Mahorn and, and those guys, they were just uh, John Sally. I mean, when you played the bad boys, it's so funny. When you go back and look uh, at that documentary, man, they're out there just killing people. Yeah. But I usually tell people, when you played the bad boy, you're just like, hey, honey, just in case something yeah. don't happen, <laughs> I love I y'all. Yeah, just in case I don't make it out tonight. <laughs> I mean, that's how physical. I mean, and it, it, yeah, they were probably calling home saying that about yeah. you, though, too. Uh, but see, they were trying to hurt people. Yeah. Yeah, Beer and those guys, they were trying to hurt people. You didn't ever try to hurt anybody. No. But those were the rules back then. You could just grab people around the neck. Yeah. Yeah, those were the rules. 
You said Bobby Knight changed your view of what it'd take to be great. Bobby Knight's not a nice man. No. He's a great coach. I respect him as a coach. Uh, I respect him for graduating players, which is the most important thing I tell all these college coaches. But I didn't like him as a person. Uh, I thought he was a bully. That'd be fair uh, for me to say, because uh, I'm not going to get on here and lie. The guy's a great coach. I told you I admire his coaching and graduating players, but I did not like him at all as a person. Uh, he he was just a bully. Yeah. And he cut you for gaining weight during the trials? I didn't gain weight, I, and I should have made the team number one. Yeah. He just didn't like me. That probably was the thing that bugged me the most. Like, I was never going to make the team. Because go back and look. But why? That's crazy. He just didn't like me. It's just that's crazy. And, and everybody whoever who was there said I was the second best player there after Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, well, how do you represent the country and leave you at home? You know, but just the same guy now. You know, people don't want to talk about it. He, he sent me, John Stock, because when I went home, John Stock and Carl Malone with me. So he didn't just cut me. And also, you got to admit, he ran Larry Bird out of Indiana. Yeah. So... Everybody's like, I said, wait, this, but he just did not like me. And it bothered me for a long time. Cause like when I went there, it'd be great to represent your country. But he had made up his mind. Charles Barker's not going to make my Olympic team, period. So you think that was just a foregone bias on his part? No question. Well, it had to be. I was the second best player there after Michael Jordan. Yeah. If you go back and look at the time, I defy you to find. 10 people in the country that would disagree with that at the time. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, talking to some of the – George Raveling was there, one of the coaches. Uh, and they're like, Charles, you're not going to make the team. And I'm like, why? I'm playing pretty good. Like, you're not going to make the team. So it, it was a foregone conclusion that he wasn't going to pick me. It takes maturity to get past that and live with it. At the time, I was probably not mature enough, but I proved my point because – once I got done with that, everybody knew I could play. Because people were not sure if I was tall enough to play in the NBA. So, like, what position is he going to play? So I kind of got, I kind of got what I wanted out of the experience, because we started with like a hundred players, and I made it down to the final sixteen. And at that point, people were like, okay, Charles Barker can play in the NBA. So I got what I wanted out of the experience. Yeah. 23,000 points, 12,000 rebounds, 4,000 assists. I think you made your point. Uh, You know, it worked (laughs) out good for me. But, man, I tell you what, Doc, you know, when you're growing up in the projects, like I got a couple thousand people in my little hometown. Man, sometimes I sit around and say, I can't believe my life. I'm so lucky and blessed. And I'm not just saying that to, to, to snuggle up to you. Like, when you're growing up in this environment, you're living in the projects, and now, 55 years later, I'm like, man, I've had a pretty amazing life. I mean, it's amazing. If you hadn't gone basketball, what would you have done with your life? I don't even know, to be honest with you. And I don't want to give you no fake answer. I have zero idea. There was no plan B. Well, because I had success as a freshman. Because I led the SEC in rebounding for three years. And one of my coaches said, you know, if you get 10 rebounds a night, if you look at the NBA right now, I think there's probably only seven or eight guys averaging 10 rebounds a game. Right. He says, if you get 10 rebounds a night, son, you're going to be in the NBA. And I'm like, that's going to be my specialty. I'm going to get me at least 10 rebounds a night. So after I did it my freshman year, they're like, okay, my only regret about college was I was not mature enough to lose weight sooner because I played at 300 pounds in college. 
until Moses Malone, who's probably the most influential person in my NBA career, uh, he made me lose 50. Well, well, he didn't make me. He, I asked him why I wasn't get to play. And the true uh, Moses Malone, he said, you fat and you lazy. And I said, what? <laughs> he says, you're fat and you're lazy. He said, but you're only lazy because you're fat. And he says, you can't play at 300 pounds in the NBA, Charles. You can do it in college, but you can't play because the players are too good. And ha- happenstance, me and Moses lives in the same building. And that's why I call him dad. He says, if you want to get in shape, I'll help you. He met with me before practice, every day after practice. Uh, and so I was at that point, I was about 295, somewhere in there. He says, let's just lose 10 pounds. I got to 285. Now, I'm, you know, obviously you can work harder. He said, let's get to 275. And now I'm starting to get to play. Then we get to 265. Now I'm starting. And then I get to 255. Now I'm really playing well. I get to 245, but I don't have any energy or strength. He says, okay, now we know what your weight is. So I played my entire career at 255. But Moses, when he got me that weight off of me, uh, my college coach was a good coach, but he – didn't have that. Uh, he couldn't get the weight off me. I didn't work hard enough. I was having success. That was probably my biggest problem. But then when I got to the NBA and couldn't play, Moses got that weight off of me. How'd he do it? I had to learn two words. I'm full. Uh, <laughs> we always joke around. I mean, it, uh, number one, you have to change your diet because you can only work out for so much. Yeah. You got to change your diet. Uh, but, man, it was. He just he met with me every day before practice and after practice. Really? It was awesome. Man, that's a yeah, gift. That is a gift. But, you know, Doc, that, that's the difference between this generation and my generation. My generation listened to the older players. Like, they taught me how to save my money. They taught me how to dress. You tell these young kids today, they're like, yo, uh, don't be the old man, get off my lawn, trying to tell me how to spend my money. I'm about what I want to. I'm like, dude, I'm not trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you how this movie ends. Yeah, You're going to be one of those 80% of fools who are going to be like, what happened to all my money? What happened to all my money? I'm like, dude, I've seen, I've been in the NBA since 1984. I see how this movie ends. Like, I always use this analogy. One of my favorite movies is The Perfect Storm. George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg drown every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, like, every time I watch that movie, I'm like, they're going to make it. It's kind of <laughs> like these young kids when you see them like, man, you got seven cars and you got a posse and... I'm reading that you're going out every night. This movie going to end badly. You're going to drown every time. Yeah, you're going to drown. I see, hey, Mark Wahlberg, him and George Clooney drown. No, they they didn't get saved. (laughs) No. But I tell these kids, like, yo, man, I'll give you another example. um, Because I tell them, I say, I'm not trying to be a pain. Like, I bought six cars. And Moses and Doc, like, yo, man, why you got six cars? You can only drive one at a time. Yeah. And they're like, take all those cars back. I said, you can, they, for, first of all, he says, pick one and take the rest of them back. And he'd sit me down and I said, Charles, it's not the fact that you can't afford six cars. It's the fact, like, all these cars cost over $100,000. $500,000 in two years, five years, seven years. It's going to be worth millions of dollars. This money you make now got to last you the rest of your life. He says, yeah, you can afford seven cars now. But when you need that money, when it's over, and that's the, the lesson I try to do. But these young kids today, man, they, they think we're just old geezers. That's why I say we ought to figure out some way to get their attention. 
because Emmett Smith's a good friend of mine. Yeah, he's great, and, isn't he? Yeah, he's he is, and we've been friends for a long time. And and I've used the example of of you and Emmett because eighty percent are in trouble and fall out, and then there's people like mm-hmm. you and Emmett who are contributing society, doing philanthropic work, mm-hmm. having an impact, and stuff like that. Both of y'all are successful. I mean, that's what can be done. Yes. It's not what's being done, but that's what can be done. Uh, but it's, it's like I say, we these young guys don't listen to older guys like we did. Yeah. Like when Moses and Doc and Bobby Jones and Andrew Tony says something to me, I was like, that's just like E.F. Hudden. Yeah. Like, I'm listening. <laughs> you're like, what? Uh, yeah, you're like, what? Uh, okay. But you tell some of these young guys today, they're like, yo, man. Let let me now. This is my favorite. Let me live. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> let me yeah. live. I'm like, okay, let you live. Uh, I told Robin I would call her and uh, let you say hi to her while we were together. I hope she's at home. Hey. You're on the air because I'm here with Charles. Say hello to Charles Barkley. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am. I am doing good. I'm really having a good time on the podcast. Wonderful. He, no, he said he's so starting good. to. He says he's doing this podcast. He got to keep you in the lifestyle you're accustomed to. <laughs> That's true. I told him that. Hey, well, it's More good. Than once. Hey, listen. I haven't seen you since Vegas. Everything is good. I can tell. Yes, everything is great. How many grandbabies you got now? I only have two. That's it. And they're just adorable. Well, they're adorable because you can send them back home when you're done with them. That's true, but. I have to tell you, I, it's hard to do that, but you're right. They're cute. I'll show him pictures. Oh, yes, show him. We've been having a good time. Oh, I love that. We have to go to Vegas soon. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, I tell people he's letting you decide whether to hit or not on some big bets, and I'm thinking, holy God. <laughs> I know. I was shocked when I found out how much it was. <laughs> hey, listen, we're only going to live one time. I agree. Yeah. And I think, hey, I think all three of us are doing pretty good. I think so, too. Well, happy new year. Thank you, too. Same to you. Okay. Right. We'll see you. Okay. Bye. That's awesome. She's sweet, isn't she? How long have you been married? 42 years. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's... Um, but, you that's... know, you're kind of in the same boat as me. What I mean by that is, like, sometimes you sit back and, like, I can't believe this shit. Yeah. I mean, you're on a, a different platform, but it's just the same. Like, you're like, I can't believe how blessed and amazing my life is. I'm telling you, and sometimes I shake myself because, I mean, life is good. And I, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, what I did to deserve it, but... Other than work hard. Yeah. I mean, you can't be successful without working hard. And I, I'll tell you, I've, nobody gave me squat wow. you know I've, I've worked hard and I keep working hard and I'm really proud of what we do we're in our 17th season and I'm really proud of that well you should be thank you thank you man my pleasure find fill in the blanks in your podcast app then subscribe so you don't miss an episode